Uh, thank you all for coming out. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I owe you guys an apology. Uh, somehow I got it in my head uh, that I was talking to each class. Uh, on, uh, How many of you are in this class? Okay, well, I imagine that we would be sitting around the table or something and we would shoot the shit about a text that I thought was very interesting on the scene. Uh, and then yesterday, you sent me a very gentle email. You obviously pretend to realize that I didn't know what I was doing. And <laughs> before, and by the way, it was a new motto lecture, uh, not a class. Uh, so this will be a funky new motto lecture, I'll tell you, because I didn't have time after that to do the computer for a new lecture. So I'm going to have to do to you a version of what I thought I was doing in the class, which is just to try to take you through one text. Uh, so I did put on a tie, <laughs> occasion, but uh, otherwise, uh, it would be one of the fun years in my collection. So I just, uh, I want to look at the text and then as soon as I stop talking, we can look at our conversation about it. The text I want to talk to you about which you haven't covered yet, I'm sorry, the departmental definition is putting a line to the pages of this era. It's a text by a very famous Japanese then Master Jordan, in the 13th century, and was the founder of the Shogo Gen, the most popular, the Shobogenzo is an unusual kind of writing. How many of you have taken a look at some English translations? Uh, so, I trust you agree. Um, it's unusual in English, and it's uh, even more unusual, you might say, in the original language. Uh, the author, Jogen, was one of the first Japanese to go to China and study in Zen monasteries in China. And uh, the Zen monasteries in China were experimenting with, by that time, had developed. Uh, a literature in uh, fairly colloquial Chinese, instead of speaking uh, or writing in the classical Chinese of the Greek text, they were using what was in effect a kind of street talk, uh, telling lots of stories, writing poetry, lots of new forms of literature using uh, lots of classical Chinese that the Japanese scholars and Buddhists were familiar with, but uh, the current language. And Gilbert was fascinated by that. He stayed for four years there. He read a lot of that literature. He's probably the first Japanese really to throw himself into this new kind of literature and make it his own. So when he came back to Japan, he began uh, using that literature for the first time. And interestingly enough, chose to write in Japanese rather than in Chinese, which was quite Latin for the church uh, in so his several Denver texts are notoriously difficult, interesting for uh, linguists and uh, scholars of Japanese literature. They mix together uh, vernacular, uh, classical, what we now call classical Japanese, uh, with a kind of colloquial form of Chinese that was turned in their own language when Sylvia was there. And there's lots of literary plays uh, and tricks that they can do when you mix two different, completely really, very different languages uh, together. So, uh, the Shobo Genza then is a mix of uh, contemporaneous Chinese-style Zen stories and commentaries on stories, whereby Japanese interest is over the personal interest in kind of philosophical expectation of things. Zen actually, you know, are not very good philosophers. Uh, they don't have that patience for philosophy, and if you start it up, they do it or something like that. Uh, but Dovey loved his talk and his writing, then extended essays uh, on the same story in ways that the Chinese scientists themselves tended not to use. But very interesting body of literature. And the text that you have in front of you is from that collection, which comprises about 100 texts, which uh, also uh, are very interesting. <coughs> It was written in 1240 when Dover was living just outside of the capital, what was then the imperial capital of Chaos Hill, as we then called Dover. He had a 
set up a commentary. Uh, he was working very hard on these commentaries uh, that eventually became the Shobo Rinpoche. This one is written probably at the height of his literary powers, and I think it's, uh, other people would agree with me, it's one of the most delicate of the pieces in that collection. This is have uh, any of you looked at English translations of it? A couple of them have. Your translation. Your translation. I think you'll agree that if you look at it, this is not the kind of text that you just pick up, you know, to read through and say, oh, that was cool, and then move on to the next thing. It's the kind of text that's so complicated and difficult uh, that you have to read it over and over again. So what I'm going to do to it tonight is that we introduce it to you in the hopes that sometime in future life, when you come across it again, uh, you'll remember and uh, take a look at it. Gary uh, Snyder, who wrote a long poem that incorporated uh, material from this text, uh, told me that when he got a hold of the text for the first time it, and, and realized he would have to incorporate it into his poem, it's been back 10 years trying to figure out what it was about and how it related to what he wanted. The long poem that he published some years ago called Now We Can Bridge That End. Very interesting uh, work. So here we're just going to have some, as we call them, highlights of a few points uh, about the text. The text is, uh, because of the theme of the uh, course, and I guess of the lecture now, uh, about the landscape. In fact, the title of the text is Japanese Song to the Hills. Some tree is a standard term for landscape, like uh, landscape gardening uh, or landscape painting. That's the term they use mountains and waters. So you could call it the landscape, landscape sutra if you wanted to. But uh, although Buddhists write a lot about landscape, and presumably you were reading some of that in your classes, this is a little different than the usual Buddhist writing. I think that Buddhists usually, when they mean landscape, mean a particular place. Most of their writing is about places, and then they tend to say sacralize them, that is, they dress them up in some way by telling uh, stories about them. Usually, in, in one of two ways, or sometimes in both ways. One, they try to locate this particular place, say a mountain or a temple or uh, what have you, uh, in some larger Buddhist cosmological frame. They imagine that that is a microcosm, say, of a paradigm. Place where you live or that you're going to on a pilgrimage has all the resonance of all these meanings because of homologies or relationships between the human world and uh, meanings that associated with it are the The other way this is talk about this. This is the place where the famous Kobo Daishi or someone uh, once uh, had a fit. Or uh, this is the place where the Bodhisattva came down and or this is a place where there a dragon once was seen by a great just like uh, historical narrative that uh, very often used to, uh, to glorify temples or other sacred places. But it's about place in Buddhist tend not to write about the landscape in the abstract. It's not a Buddhist category. If you think about it, there's very few sutras in which you said at one time, that's how I heard it from the book, such place, and then he said, let's talk about nature. You know, we have a sense that Buddhism is not a modern environmentalist or ecologist, but uh, Buddhism has lots of resources, which they will have, for the people interested in the environment. The Buddhists themselves, in their traditional writings, don't typically talk about the natural world as a category. They're much more interested in the inner uh, life of the people who are experiencing the world than what the world is like. But uh, this text does talk about the natural world, not about a particular place, but kind of utopia, an ideal place to be found, or the natural world uh, in general. And here, Sylvia is drawing on the kind of literature that, uh, and interest that he found in Southern China when he went there. We have a, an interesting of Zen Buddhism as that form of Buddhism that is closest to nature. Zen Buddhism likes to uh, Use nature imagery, they like to go to temples in the mountains and travel from temple to temple. So they have a sense of them, uh, a sense that they cultivate and advertise, like they have as 
quite different from the sophisticated, urbanized, if you will, uh, Confucian gentlemen who lived in the city. Uh, these guys were out in the mountains, they worked in the fields, they talked about the oxen and the buffalo, and they cut wood. Uh, and they, they adopt a persona of a kind of Taoist rustic sage, uh, unlettered, uh, unsophisticated, and proud of they were the, I don't know, Texas or something. I'm not sure what the front of it is. They're anything. They're anti-city, anti-sophistication but uh, that aside, and all that energy aside, you'd be hard to find text from China that sat down and said, this is what nature is about. This is what nature means. They don't think. Instead, the figures in their story, the kind of background, uh, scenery, you might say, for their conversations and their activities, but uh, they don't typically uh, talk about it directly as the subject of their So, what they're doing is reflecting a kind of long standing, not Buddhist, but Chinese uh, cultural dichotomy between nature and culture. Long standing one, pre Buddhist But one that becomes, in Northern work in China, as a, during the Southern Dynasty, a very important part of the elite literati culture, besides living in the city and having a certain kind of nature romanticism or nostalgia for the countryside and for the natural and for the, uh, the plain and uh, rough. So we get in the film that we like landscape painting, landscape gardening, like poetry about the landscape. And we're going to pick up on that, uh, both directly by reading Chinese poetry and but also indirectly through then adoption of this, since then was the And then that stuff comes back uh, with Dogen and with other then masters in Japan, and then and nature then, the film culture and then that glued together in Japan on scene because they come together uh, in a package. That becomes then a strictly Zen uh, interest in nature. Gets mixed together with Japanese poetry and Japanese interest in nature. And so we have Zen and nature, even though Zen masters themselves don't talk that much about nature. But here we have an interesting case of Zen master who decided to write a whole text about the natural world. And, um, Dogan was probably influenced in this by a particular poem, uh, written by a famous Song Dynasty poet, Su Yongkong, who, it is said, while looking out to in China one evening, uh, had a kind of awakening experience for them. Talking about another poem. This is the poem. The sound of the stream in his long, long, broad tongue, the mountain form his pristine body. This evening, 84,000 verses. How will I tell them tomorrow? So here we have the Jungle uh, sitting in the mountain and seeing the magnificent in the evening, how the silhouettes and the forms of the mountains around him, and imagining them or perceiving them as the body of the Buddha, uh, and uh, hearing the brook in the mountain spirit as the Buddha preaching to him. His long, broad time spent in the preaching, he's hearing 84,000 persons standing under the teaching of the Buddha. How will I tell it tomorrow? That last bit can be just a pointed expression of how this little bit to talk about personal experience or to be a more uh, powerful Zen style critique, you would say, to the language capture the experience of the Buddha, what you want. But in any case, here we have a poem that Dogen loves about nature as the body and speech of the Buddha. And uh, shortly before he wrote the text that we have, uh, he wrote a text with a title taken from the book, J.S.A. Tanishoku. 
the fountain that's seen in the form of the mountain. Cambridge talks about the form, and other uh, examples of Zen masters being in life and life, and seeing cherry blossoms nature invoked enlightenment. Tony never mentions the poem in our text, but it's pretty short, it's just a week after he wrote that text. And I think he probably decided that that was fine, but now I really wanted to see the uh, landscape. Our text then, on the Hill, uh pursue this by pursuing the three terms in the title.
because they are the self before the germination of any sub-divine way out there in the absolute, they are liberated from their actual occurrence. So they're actually occurring in the same type of thought. Since the virtues of the mountains are high and wide, the spirit of the mountains rise in clouds, and only the master from the mountains and the marvelous ability to follow the wind is inevitably liberated from the mountains. Here he's playing a similar kind of game, which you want to read from that way, but he's introducing a different kind of imagery. Same with the imagery of the Dallas Lucifer, who can ride the cloud and follow the wind. So he's introducing here again, as he did in his first sentence, a sense of practice, the Adam, who takes off from the mountains, so to speak. That is, they precisely relationship between the mountains and the practice of the Adam in the mountains, highlighted in the very and then he goes on, as he very often does, because after all, largely these essays are largely commentaries on Chinese Zen saying, so he gives us a Chinese Zen saying, the precept of Kai of Dayan, saying the blue mountains are constantly born. And uh, then he'll trip out on walking, the meaning of walking. Uh, the easiest meaning for us, though, is impermanence. That is to say, he's taking mountains of static water, or we take mountains of static water is flowing, symbolic of the polarity, and he's going to pick as a then mountain, like say, the bridge is flowing and the river ain't. And the easiest way, I think, intellectually, we're trying to understand what they're getting at, whatever else is going on, is that they're reverting to or evoking the the classical Buddhist doctrine that all things are So there's no such thing as a permanent mountain. But the mountain is new in every moment because what makes up the mountain is just a collection of its mountain characteristics, you might say, being injured in moment after moment. So the mountain is a verb, you might say. All things are verbs, they're happening. Mountains are mountains, mountains are mountains, mountains. Uh, and here taken as uh, walking. That's one of the things. And the second part of that uh, quotation, some mountains is birth to a child in the night, is another. Some woman gives birth to a child in the night. Some woman is a classic um, magician uh, example of, uh, of an impossibility. It means a daring woman. So a daring woman giving birth uh, is another one is born by that. These are standard throwaway lines, but this guy has taken it uh, probably in the metaphysical direction. Uh, that, it, that our world, the, 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 what is it, the child in the night, we take, we take that as our world, as what's coming to the Our world emerges as a, as a miracle, as a mystery, out of what should not be. So emptiness and then the world arises. This is the same kind of part. And William doesn't, uh, instead of taking the stone woman as a woman that just stands in the airport for the barrack woman, he picks up on the stone because he's doing nothing to the So he picks up on the stone and does a whole lift on all the different kinds of stones that are. Uh, this is a very common trick. He'll take something that most people, certainly native Chinese people, can just read by. He sees it with bright eyes, fresh. What that literally means is, and then blows it up into uh, some kind of linguistic game. So uh, here, and again, uh, here, it's a fairly, so far, it's a fairly familiar ground for people, even though it's just in uh, literary language, a fairly, fairly familiar metaphysical ground, a philosophical ground, that all things are changing, and that uh, because they're changing, they're empty of the kind of so, Jogan can say, as many of these philosophers will, because they're changing the concept, he says in here, precisely because they're walking with the concept, and if you want to read that as code for philosophy, because they're empty, they don't actually happen in the way you think they happen. And therefore, nothing is arising, and nothing is ceasing. It's a game that is very familiar to philosophy, kind of thing. But Tolkien does something that is a little bit more unusual. If you look on page two, <coughs> in the second paragraph, 
there that you and I are not strangers. You are not infants. We ourselves are not strangers. So right away, you want to say, don't think that there's us, the living beings, who inhabit an infantry dead world. And neither, neither of them can work for either of those uh, types you want to talk about. Beyond that, uh, or beneath that. And then if we think that way, we can have no doubts about the new house of walking. But then he goes down in that paragraph to say, studying, we should be, we should be studying the blue mountains walking and our own walking. And then he says, including an accounting of the facts the counting of both stepping back and backward steps is very strange. Right, he's playing with an idiot here. He should do an accounting of the fact that since the very time before any subtle sign, since the other side of the kingdom of entrance, in other words, from the very beginning, both ontologically, you might say, historically, uh, walking by stepping forward and back and never stopping. What's he doing? Stepping back is a technical term in for meditation. They tell you, instead of studying Buddhism out there in the world, step back, take a step back. But that means still, that's the way we use it, don't take a step back. But turn the light back. Study the sun, that's the sun. So he's introducing it, it's not only that the mountains are walking, they're walking, they're stepping back, they're walking back. In other words, the mountains are not just going about their business of being permanent, but they're studying themselves in the process of being permanent. They're managing the process. The mountains are practicing Buddhism. That's a very strong, uh, interesting thing. So, in the next paragraph, the Blue Mountains devote themselves to the investigation of water. The East Mountain, which is how to do studies moving over the water. And this study is the mountain's own study. So, that's a very interesting kind of metaphysical meditation, I say, that uh, our meditation practice is now linked up with impermanence with the fact that things are going on moment after moment. And of course, the Buddhists are often advised simply to live in the moment, and that is their meditation. So here's a way of linking to a much more concrete and dramatic image of who you are, and linked up to the moment. You are not just linked up with your own mind, but you're linked up to the world as it's actually arising out of empty. And then, so that's an interesting thing on the next Page, page Uh, I want to ask my teacher in Japan, how can you talk like that? And he said, oh, that's the way upper class people in the show don't talk. So, in the middle of that page, uh, he starts giving a, a list of things, actually they're taken from the scripture, ways that we might see the mountains, four ways of uh, seeing the mountains. Uh, I guess as a warning, we shouldn't get bogged down in particular, our own particular views, and then start criticizing people who start talking about uh, particular views, beginning of paragraph, and over the paragraph on the page. Turning the object and turning the mind is criticized by the great faith. Explaining the mind and explaining the nature is not affirmed by the Buddha and Anthony. Seeing the mind and seeing the nature is the business of non business uh, starting to see your nature. If you see your nature, you'll be a witness and expression to great things. See the nature is a non-Buddhist understanding of outside tradition, the alien way. Sticking to words and sticking to phrases, which I think sums up what you're saying, are not the words of liberation. There are uh, words such as the East Mountain moving on the water, the Mountain moving on the free from So here, look at this. We are with a Zen master who is saying, look, don't get stuck on explanations, don't get stuck on language. Go to the real thing. 
Don't love the car driving, don't love the deal driving. Go to the stop living in the world of language. Turns out that's not what this is about. Uh, if you uh, go to the next page, page four, the last paragraph, he tells us what this is about, what it's really about. At the present time in the land of the great swamp, there is a certain bunch of illiterates who have formed such a crowd that can't be overcome by the few real people. They maintain the same such as this, the one we've just given about the cotton uh, moving, uh, or a saying about non-transcriptual, this is one of the non-separatists, these are incomprehensible thoughts. Their idea is that anything that's involved with that thought is not a Zen saying of the Buddhist and It's incomprehensible saying, precisely the I was saying of the Buddhist and Consequently, they hold that Bongo is sick of Lindsay's war, this is kind of a story where Lindsay got hit by Bongo and then he roared at him, uh, called beating and shouting Zen. These such things that are difficult to comprehend and cannot be, are difficult to comprehend and cannot be grasped by thought, indeed, represents a great awakening preceding the time before the termination of any such time. This is precisely when it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, he calls it a bunch of illiterate, and then he goes on to the next case. It's really attractive to say they have a teacher, uh, a they're the sons of models, the evil ones, they're like the gang of six, the evil ones, the kind of the uh, they, they represent the decline of the great way of the Buddhist ancestors. They're inferior to the Kinyana monks, more foolish than non-Buddhists, they're dumber than beasts. It's just, it's just, you know, it's pretty bad. Uh, and then he says at the end, he's addressing them directly, and he says, Who could have taught you this? So you have no natural teacher, yours is the natural student of the alien race of the non this is a, a standard of a natural for those who deny the doctrine of karma, that they believe the things that occur continuously without rhyme or without cause or effect. And very often that He's calling these types of them that. The one they're most familiar with is probably going to go and write them. But so when you read about them, he's calling them a bunch of natural so here you see an example of a Zen master, who's a little different from the one we're used to. Uh, the scholars like to talk about uh, the Zen masters, the ones we're more used to them, using what they call apostatic language, which is essentially Christian theology. They talk about God only by denying things, and not this, and not that. Yes, if you start attributing anything to God, you already, you know, sort of, generally, uh, so you can only say it's not that it's not that transparent, you can pick up and say But those are, here talking out of another tradition that the theologians call habitatic tradition, which you attribute things to God. And you have the same tension within you. Those who just keep saying it's all empty, it's all empty, I can't talk about it, the monasteries keep silent and ask that they don't the truth is. Uh, and those who just say that is shallow, that's what we have to speak. The monasteries couldn't speak that he was a layman. He didn't know what he said. He didn't know what he said. But, uh, in other words, a form of Buddhism that's especially used to, for example, in consciousness and meat skills, that doesn't study type of where speech, the Buddhist speech, is absolutely true. Mantras and mandalas and all these sorts of things that represent the Buddha are taken as the ultimate expression, not about second-rate cultural accommodation. And Dogen very often critical of those who are critical of reason and critical of language and think that somehow reality transcends no, it is our, what we might call more broadly, cultural production is part of that reality. And to the extent that we're participating in that reality as human beings, as Buddhists, we have to speak, we have to do something, we have to make something. 
So he's a very strong opponent of those who make substances between culture and nature or the natural and artificial. Uh, and he's always in there that in this context, you have to speak, you have to uh, act. Uh, so that, that, I think, understanding that helps you understand the degree to which he is really just let it out, let it all hang out and talk about this nature in this way without being shy or saying, well, I'm sure it's just not The more mysterious it is, the more you have to develop a mysterious language to deal with it. Okay, set uh, the mountain section. Uh, on page five, we begin the water section. And we would expect, given the dichotomy between the stable mountain and the changing water, that now we're going to get into the stability of consciousness. He's not much interested in that. He wants to continue with the mutability, you might say, of these things, but now he wants to shift his perspective uh, to the kind of emptiness that results from perspective, from shifting. This is a very interesting question in which he asked the question, is there any water apart from perspective on water? And he runs us through uh, from the on page five of the beginning where he starts the water section. He first of all breaks down our ordinary understanding of water. Water is either strong or weak, wet or dry, moving or still, cold or hot, being or non-being, delusion or enlightenment. Here the hot water was delusion or enlightenment anyway. Now we know that the mountains are the things they look at too. is harder than diamonds who could break it, milk is softer than milk who could break it. So water is mutable some way and doesn't get our mutual understanding. But then on the next page, he runs us through what are called in this case the four years of water. This is taken out of Yoga Chaga, the idea that it's just a softer water. To demonstrate the degree to which you are able to establish an object apart from the perception of the perception that you have to do with it. And you might make some kind of argument. So, some being God, sea water, and human. But other beings, like hungry ghosts, see it as a problem. And dragging the fish who live in God, see it as a And those who play especially with dragging the fish, they're very much God. Talking about the beautiful power that the water makes for dragging the fish. And my favorite in that bit uh, occurs on the next page of this, occurs on page nine. Later on in the discussion, they're adding quite a bit in various ways about different perspectives on what we think of water. He says, nevertheless, when dragging the fish in water, as a palace, just as a human palace, they don't view it as flowing. In other words, their palaces are as stable as our palaces. So it's a really different kind of water. And if some onlooker were to explain to them that their palace was flowing water, they would surely be just as amazed as we are now to hear it said that mountains flow. So uh, it's a very attractive, it gets into the mind of the dragon. Might say, and has some, some idiot human comes up and says, you know, actually, this is, a, this is water, and pouring water is not a palace, and the dragon is not. But he thinks, my position is somewhat like that. I'm talking to you about flowing mountains, and you're saying, wow. It's a very nice uh, little touch, I think, to put it in there. Uh, so, uh, he has a nice section there where he says, uh, where he he worries about this question of whether there is any water. He does it more in the form of questions than in self statements. Uh, on page six, the penultimate paragraph, give me at what different types of beings he is different. You should have some doubts about this. In other words, think about it, guys. Uh, is, is it that there are various ways of seeing a single object? Something X that we call water, that we call it or is it that we mistake in very image for one object in order to have dragons have something we call palaces, we have something we call water? What is it that ties those two together? Is it something outside of these perceptions? So it's a very interesting kind of idealist argument 
regarding the question of, of external objects at all. And then he says, in a gentle sort of way, in that last paragraph, although we say there's water of various types, it would seem there's no original water, no basic water, no water of various types. And on the next page, seven, uh, he introduces a quote. This is a little unusual in his writing, but uh, it's very strange. This is a quote from a non-native script. The one that the text uses for the thousand times. Chinese text. That basically says, why are there nothing? Why are there the Tao? Why are there nothing? The Tao of the life is not wind, not sand, not uh, rivers and streams. But then he picks up on uh, this. Has a way of saying that uh, water fills the entire kite. The water is not just the water that we encounter in our daily life, but there is water everywhere. And I won't go through it, but he does this uh, considerable sort of vision of the water. Every single drop of water contains the entire universe, and every single field where everywhere in the middle field there is water. So in other words, water is now metaphor for existence itself. Uh, and uh, he calls it at one point the koan, that is to say the mystery, but then we the mystery they're trying to solve. The koan of the appearance of water. That's all we have. Water happens in the mystery. And it's a much and we try to say it's a much bigger mystery uh, than we think when you look at the past and and then he ties this uh, with Buddhism, let me say, Buddhist realm, the concept of the cosmology and within which there is Buddhism. But he says, uh, on page uh, 7, I guess on page 8, yeah, on page 8, wherever the Buddhas and ancestors are, water is always there. Wherever water is, there the Buddhas and ancestors always so when the water comes out of the past, the Buddhas and Zenas are coming out of the past. And when my cat runs up to drink out of the past, that means my cat doesn't do that. It's drinking the Buddhas and Zenas. Therefore, the Buddhas and ancestors have always taken up water as their own body and mind, their own system. That was all Buddhist teachers. You, uh, water, have Take water as itself and as their own consciousness. And that uh, introduction of the Buddhist ancestors and the notion of the Buddha land, or the landscape that the Buddha land, uh, introduces them to the final section. I'll just say a couple words about it now. Stop. On uh, page 10, About Buddhism in the landscape. From the distant past to the distant present, that's the word game. Uh, mountains have been dwelling, have been the dwelling place of the great saints. Wise men and places have all made the mountains their, cha- their own chamber, their own body and mind. And through these wise men and places, the mountains have appeared. However many great sages and wise men you suppose have assembled in the mountains, ever since they entered the mountains, no one has met a single one. They disappear when they go into the mountains. So when you go looking for those hermits in the mountains, they then come to little islands and they completely disappear. All that they have to do is what we call the expression of the mountain way of life. Not, now you can take that either as the way of life of people who live in the mountains, but clearly you want to say that the life of the mountains itself. That's all that's left after those people go in. Not a single trace of their having anything to be made. And then he goes on to say that the mountains are completely different when we're in the world facing off of them and uh, when we're actually in the mountains. So to take the mountains as a metaphor for 
and all good as there's mountains and mountains in the water. A couple of possible and then I said a little bit longer, yeah, I'm not going to go down to the mountains, I'm not going to go down to the mountains, I'm not going to go down to the mountains, I'm not going to go down to the mountains. That's the way uh, likely one, given what you said uh, in the uh, passage. These words do not mean that mountains are mountains. They mean that mountains are mountains. <laughs> Therefore, we study these mountains. When we study these mountains, this is a mountain training again, training in the mountains, or is this a mountain training in the mountains? And then he says, such mountains and waters themselves come wise in the sea. So the mountains, the white man takes his own mountains, the mountains become their own mountains. Okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, Yes, yeah, yeah, so I think we have time for a few questions, and yeah, and we'll invite you to answer other questions. Sure. Good. Yeah. Good. 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 I wrote it out last night and I want you guys to read it. 
and you presented it to the assembly and they all quickly photocopied it and passed it around. <laughs> or he actually threw up the copy. And I would just expose Say he was writing and talking about what he was writing at the same time. Very much like here's your goal to meditation. And it is they are constantly at rest and walk so it's getting the mind down the thread for the action. Now he is, like any Zenda, opposed to the notion that meditation is about getting the mind calm. Oh. Yes. There's, there's a very common notion in this, that Zen meditation is about calming the waves on the surface of our mind so that we can have the same our Buddha nature. I see your nature as the So, the meditation model then is, why don't we see our nature? We all have it, they say, but I don't see it. So it's because the surface of my mind is like the surface of the ocean, blown by the winds of ignorance, I don't see it. But if the surface is still, I don't see it. That's a very common model in the meditation. And it's a model that is criticized very strongly by many of them that we can do.